The Last Word with Matt Cooper. For the week trending, we're joined by Lorcan Nine, Head of Training at the Communications Clinic, and by Brianna Parkins, columnist with the Irish Times, and of course, Australian living in Ireland. And I have to ask you, Brianna, to start, have you ever been known to serve anyone mushrooms in food you might make for them? <laughs> no, I haven't. But since this case has been in the news, my dad's refused to eat any dish with mushrooms that my mum has cooked because of this case. You better explain this case. This is coming from Australia, obviously, of a woman who has been accused of trying to poison people with mushrooms. Yeah, she has been arrested um, and she stands um, trial. Well, she, she's been um, charged with the murder of three people and the attempted murder, five counts of attempted murder, three times by the same person, which was her ex-partner. Now, what had happened is she'd had everyone over for a meal at her house. She lives in an area um, in the Latrobe Valley, which is near, uh, outside of Melbourne, but it's a lovely wooded area. Mushroom foraging is not uncommon in this area. She served up um, a beef stroganoff with mushroom in it and then people started to fall ill in the hours after um, three have died, one is in a serious condition in hospital. Um, so this is not something we're making light of but no. still, it is pretty unique, isn't it? Incredible. There's a lot of interesting details with the case. The fact that her ex-partner did not go to this meal, he had actually eaten one of her meals previously, gotten very sick, had to become, had to go on essentially, he was in intensive care, um, his liver, had to go on light liver supporting medication and no one could figure out what was wrong with him. She said that she also got sick but her, injury, her um, illness wasn't life-threatening. Now, in her defence, she says that she ate the meal herself, she served it up on plates um, and anyone could have picked their own slice. So the, the mushrooms weren't concentrated in a, in a particular slice. They Lucky also, dip whether you got the mushrooms yeah. or not. Well, and then it was interesting the fact that her kids didn't eat the meal, but she said that she put the leftovers in the fridge where her children could have accessed it. So it gave a lot of doubt over whether this woman, um, you know, whether this was a horrific accident or whether this was premeditated. And this went on for weeks. It was sort of this sort of captured a lot of attention in Australia about she did this big, long emotional plea to the police and and released it to the public saying that she was innocent. And now she's been charged, of course. So um, the reporting's going to have to die down until the trial, but it is one of the the, the cases that sort of capture the nation's attention. And by the way, people she, the people that uh, died were her in-laws as well, which kind of adds, you know, an extra dimension to the case. Yeah. the A lot of the coverage I've read of this has described it as something that would be good in a detective series that is like, you know, Murder, She Wrote or something like that. But it would be a relatively short episode, though, because, I mean, it wasn't exactly the best planned thing in the world from what I can gather from it, given she had tried it three times previously and this is the fourth time that the person who she had tried it on, apparently, the three times before it wasn't there and yet she, she continued with it. And her excuse is that she bought these in the supermarket or as well as some dried mushrooms mm. in a different shop. So it's not even, she's not even saying, I foraged and I didn't know and I'm so sorry, it was a mistake. She's blaming somewhere that you could obviously go and check are they using the most poisonous mushroom that is found in Australia? And I guarantee you, they're not. So I don't think it was the best thought-through plan, perhaps, in the world. Um, and she's now been charged with it. And I think there's a, I saw there's an element with the corkies where they're looking at seizing the computer. So I imagine there's going to be Google searches uh, that are going to be found. Okay, let's move on. And 
We had, I suppose, some fun at the time when Donald Trump uh, inquired as to whether bleach could be used as a way of killing COVID. But it seems that information this week suggests that Boris Johnson, as British Prime Minister, may have actually outdone him, albeit in private rather than Trump saying it in public. Yeah, he had his bleach moment, but his the, the only thing you can say for him is that he was slightly smart enough to do it in a WhatsApp group and not do it in a public press conference. So he saw a video that implied a special hairdryer blown up the nose could protect from COVID. And he sent this into a WhatsApp group to the chief scientific advisor, basically saying, will you check this out? Is this something that we could do? So look, it's one of the many... Sorry, blowing hot air from a hairdryer up your nose, mm. he thought might be a way of combating COVID. It's the kind of thing that if your most ridiculous, dense, annoying, naive friend had sent him to WhatsApp group, you'd either kick them out of the WhatsApp group or you'd have to leave the WhatsApp group. It's just, it's nonsensical. And I think any time when the curtain gets pulled back a little bit on people who are in charge when something goes wrong, it's almost always honestly devastating because you always assume there is some hidden competence, that there is somebody who's actually in charge that they can't actually be as dim and as dense as they seem at times and then they almost always just are and are in fact worse than you expected um, and I think it's the final final well it should be anyway the final blow for the idea that being popular or being able to cite Greek or Roman classics is anything at all to do with okay, intelligence. Th- this comes from evidence, there's lots of evidence in a COVID inquiry that's taking place at present. His former Machiavellian spin doctor, Dominic Cummings, with whom he fell out, has been dishing most of the blows, hasn't he? And it's been pretty damning stuff. But do we believe it? Look, it's hard to know. It's hard to know. One of the things that Dominic Cummins has said, and I think if it's true, this is in some ways more damning, is that Johnson started going around saying, I'm sick of COVID, get me a dead cat so that we can get it off the front pages. The dead cat obviously being the analogy that you throw a dead cat in the middle of the table in a meeting, and that's all people can talk about, so it distracts the public. That he's going around asking his spin doctor to say, find me something to distract from COVID. COVID, which at the time had shut down the entire economy, COVID at the time that was killing, you know, hundreds, uh, thousands of people. So I think that's even more damning because that's not just idiocy or naiveness or a vain attempt to maybe try to fix the thing, even if it's misguided. That's just, I am sick of this. This isn't making me look good. Please fix it, PR man, rather than please fix it, Prime Minister. I really love inquiries because uh, we don't really do them the same way here in Ireland. Um, evidenced by the fact of, you know, there's clergy still accused of abuse that have never been rectified. But the way we do it in Australia and the UK is that everything is put on the table and it really is watching an episode of The Thick of It. Like you really, like you say, get to see behind the curtain and it's like, wow, these, these people are in charge and this is very terrifying. Okay, well, as it happens, one of Johnson's successors, because we've been through a few at this stage, Rishi Sunak has been sucking up to Elon Musk in the last couple of days. Uh, Who's been following this? Because he uh, did a thing with him. He interviewed him at an AI conference. Uh, literally trying to pretend to be a journalist, I think, but apparently a whole load of softball questions. Yeah, and so this was like, this is something Rishi Shunak wanted as his moment. I mean, he was big at getting this AI conference put together. He invited the Chinese to it and, you know, that was uh, something he was criticised for. But it was a big deal. He wanted to be a leader in AI. And then in the middle of it, he brings Elon Musk in and what has been described as pretending to be a chat show host, basically saying, Elon, aren't you fantastic? Aren't you great? What makes 
makes you so good? What makes you so happy? Give us your life lessons. I mean, Elon Musk is a guy who's shown that he actually doesn't have anything interesting or insightful to say. You know, look at his Twitter slash X account consistently. There's nothing he says that's particularly interesting. Um, he's run very successful companies, but outside of that, he doesn't have any depth to say. So maybe if he was interviewing somebody who actually had deep thoughts, do you get away with having an equal conversation, prime minister to deep thinker, but an unequal conversation, a fawning one with a fanboying over Elon Musk. I mean, how far that nation has fallen. Okay, so it's very early in the year to be nominating the word of the year. Although I could say it's very early in the year to be playing Christmas music as well, but that's just something I'll take up with Ray Foley separately. Uh, AI, the most used word of the year so far, Brianna. Have you been using it? I have, but I already thought it was in the dictionary and Collins monitors you know, all these words throughout the year and they decide which is going to be year, word of the year and which is going to be added into the dictionary. And they've gone with AI, which is technically an abbreviation which I already thought we were in the dictionary. I mean, it was sort of the subject of Do abbreviations of not become words? I, I don't know. I don't, I'm not a lexicographer, lexicographer. I can't even say that word. <laughs> Person who designs words in the dictionary. But another interesting one that I think should have taken it out was Nepo Baby. But hang on, is that a word or is that two words? As the portmanteau, I don't know. <laughs> I think the, the abbreviations become words. When they become words, they become said as a word. AI is said as still two letters so it's still an abbreviation it was also first used in 1956 yeah. as the abbreviation 1956 I find it as the word of the year they're normally new psychology words the, the issue is actually artificial intelligence has been in use by all of us for years if you use a Spotify or Netflix artificial intelligence has been applied to that the algorithms are tracking you the real thing this year has been generative AI that's the thing yeah, so I, I don't get it as the word of the year. No, I never really like these word of the years. I think they're they're a cry for headlines from from from, from dictionary companies, big dictionary. But uh, you take look, that back. The Australian word of the year is because what, what, we mangled the language in such a beautiful way. So last year we had bin chicken, which is what we call ibises. A what? Eat, we call ibises bin chickens because they eat scraps out of the bin. They're like these giant prehistoric looking birds that terrorize people and steal their sandwiches. So we went for bin chicken. Um, so that's our. Oh, it's bachelor's handbag, which is when you get a... a Sorry, a bachelor's handbag? Yeah, it's when you get a hot chicken out of the rotisserie, you know, at Dunn's or yeah, yeah. Super Value, and it comes in a plastic bag and you hold it like this. That's a bachelor's handbag because that's what you take home and that's you don't have to cook it. You can just <laughs> eat it out of the bag over the sink. <laughs> okay. So I love Word of the Year. I will not hear for Word of the Year, Slander. And just to explain for those who may not be familiar with the term what Nepo Baby means. Yes, it's a really interesting. New York Magazine called 2022 the, the year of the Nepo Baby. And it's not a new concept because these people have been around for years. Um, Angela Jolie is one. These are people who have parents. It was first concentrated in show business. So people who had parents who were already in the industry, but they were actors like Hayley Baldwin um, and along that line. Like Jane Fonda is technically an Epo baby as well. And then when you start tracing back, you really do see that people in the entertainment industry and also in our industry, the media industry, generally have parents or grandparents. And sort of this idea that the idea of, of if you're talented enough, you'll just get a job is not really how it works. And actually people get huge legs up that we don't know about. There's a listener makes the excellent point that in Ireland, if you said AI to a farmer, they say artificial insemination. <laughs> and that has been well known for many years. 
It has indeed. So maybe maybe it can't be in the in the, in the dictionary. <laughs> maybe we need a specific uh, to, to two meanings in the dictionary for it. Okay, we need to take a break. And uh, Brianna Parkins and Lorca Nine are staying with us for the week trending. Back with more after this. Week trending with Lorca Nine from the Communications Clinic. Brianna Parkins from the Irish Times. Nightclubs to be open until six a.m. from the summer. How badly is this needed in Ireland, Brianna? Well, I grew up at a time in Sydney before the lockout laws came in. And I remember we used to have a thing called day clubs that opened at 6am. So you'd go out night clubbing and then they would, the lights would come on at 6am, like, okay, lads, out you get. And then you would go into a place that was a day club and that opened at 6am and went on till midday. And this was a glorious time in an 18-year-old's life. That all changed. So it's so nice to see that Ireland is now getting to the stage where things are opening up till 6am. Now, things are already... Legally, because legally, there, there have been times open, in yeah. the past where you could... I mean, I grew up in the Leeson Street era when you could be there at 5 and 6 o'clock in the morning drinking very, very dodgy wine. You would go <laughs> to the Manhattan for something to eat on the way home, which, of course, is long gone as well. And then, if you were particularly in the mind for it, you might have an early house that you would find usually down the docks at mm. half 7 in the morning. There is one still there. I, I think there's two, actually. There's, I think Slattery's is still an early house, and there's another one down the, there as well. The Windjammer. Yeah, yes. there's a few, again, traditionally for dock workers and shift workers. But it, it will be really interesting to see um, the, whether it will change the culture and whether people and bars can actually fund people to stay out. And in terms of taxis and transportation, now things are all going to be shifting. We'll be able to find ways home safely as well. So it could change the nighttime economy. What do you think, Lorcan? Because I'm looking at this and I'm looking at my own children as young adults and I'm looking at them thinking, God, they don't stay out as late as I used to stay out. Not that I'm complaining too much about them. I hope they're not listening to that. But anyway. My instinct on this is uh, I am now up at six o'clock in the morning for a very different reason (laughs) since I've had a daughter and I don't think the generation below us should have anything that I didn't have and therefore they should not be allowed because (laughs) as, as an 18 through to 20 whatever year old, I would have been very happy with this. Uh, it would have been very exciting it would have been very enjoyable and therefore the next generation should not have um, what, what I did not have there's obviously a policy reason for this it does make sense it makes sense for the nighttime economy it makes sense to kind of spread out the time people are, are coming out of the club so that then the taxis aren't as condensed so there are logical reasons for it but as you were talking there Matt it did uh, kind of bring another issue to mind for me which was this will be the end of the lock-in and there was something quite special when you got a lock-in, when you kind of felt, yeah. this is dangerous drinking, this is different, we're, we shouldn't be allowed to do this, and therefore we are the elite being able to stay here. So we're losing that if everywhere can open at 6 o'clock so in the morning. So you're bringing back memories for me, and God, this is, I'm starting to show my age, but there was very few things better than the Sunday lock-in. I don't know if you ever made the pubs, Brianna, long before you arrived in Ireland, used to only be open between half 12 and half 2 on a Sunday and then would shut so that people would be sent home for their dinner because we eat dinner in the middle of the day and wouldn't reopen again until about half past four. There were few things better on a rainy Sunday when maybe you were supposed to have been playing a match which was called <laughs> off and you went to the pub instead and then you got the lock-in between half two and half four and stayed there for the whole afternoon and day. Yeah. We're and quite- that, you see, then by giving away with that and leaving the pubs open, there wasn't the same incentive to stay in the pub on a Sunday afternoon. Not the same incentive and not the, not the same feeling, not the same vibe. <laughs> so I think the, the more freedom thing, yeah. you get, the less special it can feel.
People say the same thing about Good Friday drinking. Like, it's not the same now that it's not illegal. But you're right, the lock-in is the greatest compliment you can get, so especially as an outsider, a Sassanac like me. Like, it's just, it's just when you're finally accepted into the local fabric, they'll let you stay into the pub. That was, that's my great achievement in Ireland, is being in a lock-in. Okay. Uh, something a bit more serious. The Gardaí last week were shocked to see 12-year-olds driving tractors on national roads in County Donegal. I presume everyone at the age of 12 in Australian Outback is driving, are they, Brianna? A 10. Um, but this was this is a bit of a different case. I mean, you know, my, my partner grew up in, in rural Ireland as well and driving tractors and cars around fields and having a field car when you're 12 and can't reach the pedals is one thing, but these, these children were allegedly driving along a main road, a highway or a remote, like, uh, you know... A, a, a national a, road. A, yeah, a busy road. I've forgotten the Irish terminology for it. Busy road with, with high um, speeds on it, but it was a part of a tractor run, I believe, so it was technically an event, but as Gardy said, some of the children couldn't reach, could barely reach the pedals. So what parent heavy machinery. allows their child whose feet can't reach the pedals to be out driving a tractor or a car on the roads? I don't believe the Gardaí were shocked by this, man. because yeah. <laughs> anybody who's grown up in rural Ireland would not be shocked with this. I do not agree what with it. Why did you I start th- driving tractors that so? Well, never, driven, never driven a tractor, man. I grew up in rural Ireland, but uh, I am not, I'm not a man for machinery. I would have thought you would know that about me at this stage. Anything that involves uh, manual uh, effort or, or impact is not my vibe. Uh, but I don't think it, they would genuinely be shocked by tractor runs or events. I don't think it should happen. I, I think it's bizarre that it still does, but I'm so t- totally unsurprised that it happens. I'm not going to pass judgment as a child who was put on dirt bikes with no helmets, so I can't really (laughs) really talk about the safety. Okay. Uh, Tell us what the problems affecting the people of Dorky. Um, the the most marginalised and oppressed people in Ireland, as we know, are the people of Dorky. Um, this was one of my favourite stories, and I'm so glad we're talking about it, because I have a passion for really irate local issues. The people just lose perspective. This was at... Um, Sorry, is it possibly the example of the most egregious loss of perspective imaginable? I don't know. I was once nearly kicked out of a local council meeting as a young journalist, giggling, giggling my way through a story. I, like The mayor stopped and said, you're going to have to leave because you're laughing too hard. So I've, I've heard of other ones but this was about it was a meeting um, about a community group in Dunleary that looks at ways of um, sustainably improving the mobility so basically bicycle lanes all that kind of jazz pedestrian parts and a man stood up and said that the the people of Dorky were like the people of Gaza because they couldn't drive their cars he likened himself to the people of Gaza and it went on Twitter and Irish Twitter did its thing the lack of self-awareness, perhaps, Sarah Lorcan? Yeah, I don't think I've ever genuinely heard anything anything like it because, look, everybody... To compare, in the, everybody, to compare the difficulty of driving your car in Dorky to what is happening in Gaza at present. Yeah, and look, everybody in the meeting shouted him down. So even in that environment, everybody just shouted him down and boom. So it wasn't a universal opinion. But to, to think that there's one person who lives in Dorky who thought that that was an acceptable comparison to make, I think everybody, most people feel the same about this. I've never had any story that has more kind of put a mirror up to us and said, how is it that we live here and people live in Gaza? Like, how, how is it that that can happen to a kid who happens to be born here while we get the life that we get here. So I, I've genuinely kind of been, it's been quite confronting. I think it's been confronting to a lot of people to kind of look at the lives that we get to live in this country. And for a resident of Dorky um, to, to come forward with that example is ridiculous. But I think even on a wider level, what their people were coming out for 
acting, they're getting political about going to meetings was they want people to be able to cycle safely and walk safely in Dalky that has huge public transport connections and people will do anything and get as angry as possible to stop having to not be in their car for a minute or two minutes or to have less parking spaces. So even outside that horrible comparison that that person made, I think the fact that they were even there giving out about this in the first place is will you come on, get a bit of perspective in your life and realise that you need to make decisions that might make your life slightly slightly worse for the betterment of people around you and the betterment of the country and the world and all of those things. But look, and where will I get my entertainment from? You're taking away one of my true joys. Why are we cutting down so many trees in Dublin, apparently? This is a bit of an issue and uh, noteworthy we've done investigations into it. So it's around the Dublin 8 and the inner city area where trees are just being felled. Now, local groups and you know people who work in this area are saying, actually, these are mature trees um, that could have been saved with a bit of care and work. Some of them might have been showing signs of um, tree disease or might not be in the best shape, but do we just fell them? You can put a bit of effort into it. A lot of scrutiny has come over Dublin City Council about just basically pulling them out of the ground instead of taking care of them. Okay, but is it difficult to take care of trees when they get to a certain stage and if they're big and elderly and rotten? Well, I don't... It can be dangerous. I mean, I've had personal experience of a tree crashing down into our front garden in our previous house, taking out the gates and actually taking out the next-door neighbour's car. A tree which clearly was a problem was left untreated and bang down it came in a storm. It does happen and this is an issue that affects, you know, this Dublin City Council is not an isolated example of this but it does speak to wider, you know, groups that do talk about the fact that when it comes to the inner city and traditionally low income working class areas trees are removed or taken out of those areas and when you go to, basically, anytime you want to call a rich suburb a rich suburb as a journalist, you go to the leafy surrounds of Dorky and there's a reason for that. Wealthier areas have trees and that improves air quality, all kinds of things. So there is sort of the question of if it was a council with more people who could give out about this and had more resources, would those trees have been looked after? Yeah, and look, what makes a city livable and what makes give a city a character is the fact that there can be trees and there can be different things in it. So I do generally think it's quite important. Well, what's been said in response to this story by the city council is that, yes, they should give more notice to areas, which is one of those things like people saying, oh yeah, we should have consulted more before we did what we wanted anyway. They should have to justify it. They shouldn't be able to just do it and then say, oh, sorry, we should have told you earlier. They should be able to say, it's dangerous for these reasons and we've done everything that we can. Because there's been quotes and quotes cited in those pieces by Owen Keegan before um, the head of Dumb City Council, um, where, former, 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 head, former head, where he, he did say that he would cut down every tree in Dublin if he could because of claims against trees falling. And I just don't think that's an attitude that we should have anymore. Um, obviously, you need to get rid of dangerous trees, very dangerous trees, but there should be a process in place. One last thing to you, Brianna. Was it unfair of Met Aaron to its British counterparts and to the British people to name the latest storm a Storm Ciaran? I I don't know. I I think Irish names should get a little bit of a boost in there, but I think it should have gone... I know that they, they alternate between male and female storms now, but I'd like a good storm for Nula or like a proper, like, for Delma, like a proper sort Actually, of... Actually, there's no fathers in those to no, confuse them. No, no fathers in those. Um, but I love this story about uh, fathers in... Uh, the fodder basically, under the Official Languages Act, now has to be recognised by public bodies, and the woman who's leading the charge of the complaints department has a fodder in her name, which is my favourite nominative, nominative determinism of the week. Kieran is not that hard a name to pronounce. Jeez, um, you know the amount of Irish people who call, somebody who's called Kieran Kieran or called Kieran Kieran who keep mixing it up all the time. Learn people's names, pronounce them correctly across the board. There's lots of Irish speakers uh, here. There's lots of Irish speakers in the north of Ireland.
Um, it's not that big a deal to have to learn how to speak yeah. Kieran instead of Kieran. Larkin Nyan and Brianna Parkins, thank you both very much for being with us here for the week trending. The last word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today.